regarding this issue of membership in the universal church or membership in the invisible church and uh, giving a little bit of a fuller answer. Uh, it was suggested that we, we um, in light of the confession of faith and its teaching on the church, and Joe, when you uh, helpfully pointed out the uh, Article 27 that I have copied for you in the booklets, but I, was, I thought you were going to suggest another one uh, a couple of articles later uh, on the church specifically, not on the sacraments, but on the church. That's where my mind was going at first. And, uh, and we do well to look there. Uh, you have a copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith. You probably don't know this. In the back of your Trinity hymnals. That's a joke. That's a joke from your foreign missionary. We don't have Trinity hymnals where I come from. I'm still working on it, though. Page... Thanks. Page 685. At the bottom of the page, which is chapter 25 uh, of the church. And uh, actually, Alan, I'll just... Alan and I were talking about this. There were three or four of us. And he has some really helpful observations as we flesh this out a little bit more and, and, um, and what it means... And how should we, we should understand the visible church and the uh, church invisible, universal. Uh, we'll all, I'll make reference to uh, articles 2 and 3. I will read those. And then I'll ask uh, Al to restate uh, his very helpful observations in that regard. But the question was put to me, shouldn't we be careful because of the, un, the uh, unordinary or extraordinary um, uh, instances where salvation does come outside of the local church and we might want to be uh, careful to, to make note of the fact that there might be those occasional examples especially in the light of the fact that perhaps pastorally there might be loved ones who, who wonder about their family members who let's say theoretically made a deathbed conversion and we have every confidence that it was of the Holy Spirit that they were knowledgeable of the uh, grace of God offered in the personal work of Jesus Christ trusted in that salvation in Christ and died believingly but were never members of a, of a visible church what about that instance there so I'll just uh, read that and then we'll, we'll address that uh, Al and I together which means Al uh, uh, as we, after I do the visible church which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel not confined to one nation as before under the law consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children, and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. And that was the point the question was making. There's no ordinary possibility of salvation, but there might well be, and is, uh, an an example here or there of extraordinary uh, reality of salvation. And then the third um, point, uh, third article into that chapter, Unto this Catholic visible church, Christ has given the ministry, oracles, and ordinances of God for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world and doth by his own presence and spirit, according to his promise, make them effectual thereunto. Al has some helpful insights and observations. (laughs) He and I will be playing volleyball during the activity. Probably triggered the San Andreas Fault. Uh, <laughs> okay, I could do that. All right, more. 
those, uh, those two uh, paragraphs from the uh, Confession of Faith, I think, really uh, form a heart of a Reformed uh, doctrine of the ministry of the church, which includes, of course, the evangelistic outreach of the church. Uh, there, the second paragraph closes with what is, for many people, a troubling statement that there is no ordinary possibility outside of salvation, outside of the visible church. What? Yes, that's true. Notice the word is ordinary, but there are extraordinary cases. We understand that. We understand that the Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows his people, and the Lord uses means, sometimes means outside of the ordinary channels, the ordinary uh, means of, uh, well, not means of grace, but the ordinary ordinances uh, given to the visible church. Uh, one man mentioned uh, the possibility you know, of someone a, on a deathbed who was converted. Well, their soul uh, is safe in the Lord Jesus. But those are the exceptions. And I think the reason that that phrase is put there is so that we do not turn those exceptions into an excuse for denigrating or uh, skipping over the importance of the, of the ministry of the visible church. And that it certainly is a constant temptation. But the real heart of this, I think, is in that third paragraph of the, of the Confessions chapter on the church, And notice it says, under this Catholic, that's a universal, this universal visible church. And uh, that church is also named in the previous uh, section as the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. This Catholic visible church, Christ has given the ministry, oracles, and ordinances of God. Those are the normal Uh, the tools that are used in the ministry of the visible church. And what are they used for? For the gathering, evangelism, outreach, spread of the gospel, the bringing in of the elect, uh, for the gathering and perfecting. There's two parts of the task. And the church, the visible church, has been equipped by Christ to accomplish this task of the gathering and the perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world and does by his own presence and spirit or according to his promise make them effectual thereunto Christ by his spirit dwells in his church and by that spirit he empowers the church to accomplish its task to uh, to uh, make these uh, ministry, oracles, and ordinances effectual for the gathering and the perfecting of the saints. You have a very compact, very uh, rich doctrine of the ministry of the visible church in this paragraph. I, I often uh, have wished that uh, one of our seminary professors would take this paragraph and, uh, and in the context of the chapter and break it down into a whole class, a course, on the ministry of the visible church, the necessity of the visible church, and the importance of it. We live in a culture, as as, uh, Dave has said, that that emphasizes the parachurch so much. Uh, The tiny little congregation, with its elders, with its discipline, uh, with its worship, those oracles, uh, ministry, and ordinances, 
feel so intimidated sometimes when you look at these gigantic parachurch organizations whose uh, budgets are almost uh, half spent on self-promotion, but they intimidate us, don't they? And we sometimes feel like we can't compete with that. Yes, you can. And it really isn't competing because we, the visible church, are the God-ordained, Christ-established, Holy Spirit-empowered means of the gathering and perfecting of the saints. And then the, the fourth person uh, who was there in our, in our chat during break uh, was also a pastor, and he had a helpful, helpful observation about the very nature of the church and the terminology, the biblical terminology of church, Old Testament and New Testament, the kahal of the Old Testament, as it, uh, it's expressed in the New Testament, the ecclesia. And at the risk of feeling a little bit like Phil Donahue, uh, uh, if, Don, if I could just kind of put you on the spot, and because this also trans- transitions really nicely to the third part in your outlines, uh, which is uh, the first part, remember, making disciples, the second part, baptizing them, and the third part, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. If you could just restate what you said there. Well, I just said that uh, those who are in the church are, are called by Christ to be his followers. He said, if, if you love me, keep my commandments. So if you're in the church, you're his followers and obedient to him. And uh, one of the, the points of obedience is that you'll assemble yourselves together. Uh, of course, you have the, the passage in Hebrews that uh, requires that of us. But um, the, uh, the obedience to the Lord uh, then would mean that you come together with God's people on a regular basis and you have uh, other uh, parts of, of the scriptures that uh, say that we have to be in submission to one another, which is a, a matter of obedience in itself and then, then requires obedience in terms of, of the leadership of the church. And uh, the, uh, the name Ecclesia, which of course is based on the Old Testament word that uh, Kahal that uh, Dave mentioned, is that, that uh, when, when the shofar, when the horn sounded, God's people came together. And uh, so that uh, to, to be in the visible church is to answer the call to come together, to, to submit to the leadership that, that God has put over you and then to use your gifts and talents uh, under that, that leadership uh, to do what Christ wants you to do. If you fail to do all that uh, and just say I'm a member of some nebulous, universal, invisible uh, church, you miss the whole point. Thank you, men, for that uh, aspect of your teaching ministry and giving us a good answer to these questions which do arise out of this doctrine of the church. Are there any other follow-up questions? Yes. Yes, they would come together. Yes. Yes. Well, well, that's a good uh, insight. They would come to the Great Commission there, would come together, be blended in that, and uh, alluded to in that third article of that chapter. Uh, the third of which is teaching them to obey, which... Anyone have the page in, in your... Uh, Boy, I'm going, to do, I'm going to do this right now. Thanks. Puts me on page 18. Puts you on page 25. Isn't that kind of discouraging that I'm only up to page 18 in my notes? Oh. oh to ask a question? 
Hey, when I said go ahead and ask the controversial questions, I should have put some, set some limit. Although, if you remember, the reason I was saying go ahead and ask them is because we have so many pastors here that can competently uh, answer them. Can I repeat the question for the tape? Uh, Larry, in a, in a nutshell, restate the question. I'll repeat it word for word for the tape. I'm just going to make these people rephrase these questions the best I can do. What, what criteria can be used to validly transfer membership from one congregation to another? And the second part, and what can you do? Yes. Uh, what biblical criteria would be? I think the answer would have to include both, but, uh, and, and the questioner meant both. Uh, for the person leaving or for the uh, session, the uh, church receiving. Uh, I was going to say again um, that I have precious little experience in ministry in Tijuana with this very question. Uh, and I probably do have, have less than I would like, but not as little as you, as you might imagine for the simple reason that Tijuana is a city of mass migration. No one came to Tijuana to begin with to stay, and it seems like precious few ever do, although that has changed dramatically in the last five, five to ten years. So we do have these instances more often than we would think. Almost always, in my case, it's, it's, it's leaving the church because of leaving Tijuana. And the reason we're leaving Tijuana is because Tijuana didn't offer, as it turned out, what I thought it would, there weren't as many jobs as we thought that we heard through in southern Mexico would be here and it didn't pay as well or it paid well but the cost of living is so high that I'm not doing as well as I was doing in southern Mexico and so off they go now there's an easy criterion there uh, because they have if it is the case that they have made a profession of faith and been re received into visible church through baptism then it is incumbent upon the session and the individual also to listen to the, the guidance of the session to find out that church in the area to, to which they intend to move. You don't just you know, up and move uh, totally irrespective of any consideration of what kind of church would be there where I'm moving to. Although we have instances of that again and again, do we not? So one of the things that I've tried to be very diligent in doing, and I've done it with greater or lesser success, but I, I figured that at least I have to try, is that if we hear that you're moving to Guadalajara, I've got to do the hard work of finding out the church or the brand new mission work or whatever it would be of the Presbyterian Church of Mexico in Guadalajara and find that pastor. It sometimes takes many phone calls. Sometimes it only takes one. Some of them are very good to return the phone calls and here we got this contact and to find a man and make sure he has at least a, an address, a street address and a phone number before he leaves and then follow up that the best we can uh, or even as far as Seattle, Washington where, of course, a, a large percentage of the people in Tijuana came, and then Tijuana is a stopping off point, and they have every intention of going north, and then they would uh, be involved in typically some of the uh, uh, farming and labor of the, of the migrant labor community as far north as Washington. Uh, so, the, and the same would apply there. Now, that's not really what Larry was getting at, though, with, with his question. Uh, what would be the criteria? Um, first of all, you, one of them would be, would the person asking to leave the church and transfer his membership into another church be asking for the right reason according to the scriptures so the session the pastor in the session 
have to ask him, let's say, it's a, it's a he, uh, if, if as best he knows his heart, there is no unresolved sin or tensions or unreconciled relationships with the local body, which are really the motivation for his wanting to change congregations. Because if that's the case, until such time as you at least meet with us on this issue, and we'll try to be loving and frank and forthright in, in our dealings here. We're not, we're not going to hold this over your head. I mean, at least that would be my approach as some type of leverage. But, but you need to be willing to, to hear the session on this. We can give you no such letter of transfer or even we also speak of a uh, letter of standing. Uh, and I'll get to that distinction in a second. Um, but, uh, but, but we need to make sure that the Christ of the church would not be dishonored where you are, in effect, um, ducking the discipline of the overseeing body, your elders, whose leadership you, by vow, on oath, said you would willingly and joyfully submit to. So that, must, that would be a foremost criterion. Oh, that's the one that first comes to mind. By the way, elders, I, I probably will omit some, and you've dealt with this much more than I, so I really would appreciate uh, any follow-up answers to this very important question. Uh, number two, I guess we, once we... Um, you would also want to ask him another criterion would be um, have you is this reason for leaving our church let's say it's a job transfer but it would transfer you to a place and there's no church to the best of your knowledge there is this a sufficient enough reason economic pro, uh, uh, progress that you make more money for you and your family is that a sufficient enough reason to uproot your family and home and leave to a place where that you don't know if there's a church that would receive you. Where are our priorities? Would we not rather live with less if we have considered the cost of discipleship, but be members of the covenant community and, and be part and active in the ministry of the local church? What is, what, after all is said and done, what is most important to us in this life? That we are able to buy that second car or third car or that we're able to be used by the Lord Jesus Christ in the establishment of his kingdom, which is the church. Um, I mean, that, that would have to be considered at some point because that's so often the case in the United States. Job transfers, especially in the uh, celluloid, not celluloid, um, silicon. So that's your, your, yours is celluloid. Uh, uh, well, it might, it might be, uh, from what I heard, Tony, you're being sent here, there, and everywhere. But I, I didn't mean to pick on you. I meant the silicon nature of California. And what I understand about computer uh, industry and, and electronics and uh, the technical aspect of it, that your job is by no means secure. You are literally here today and gone tomorrow. So it's a real challenge for the churches in Southern California. Plus also given the, uh, in San Diego area, and I guess Long Beach to a degree, the element of the military, the Navy, and where men and their families are here and transferred there um, on a regular basis. Uh, question of your, of your relationship to the local body and the session overseeing you as ones who will have to give account for your soul and your submission, your joyful and willing submission, Hebrews, uh, the 13th chapter, to the oversight of those elders. Uh, questions of have you considered why it is that you're uh, leaving and is that a sufficient enough reason? Uh, those would be two cri criterion. Before, well, let me just go ahead and finish up with regard to the receiving church, where you would go. Uh, and then I'll open it up to any other elders who, who think that I might have not touched on one aspect. Um, the receiving church. What happens a lot of times is that they would go to church and it's outside of the Reformed faith. It's outside of the doctrines which we hold dear, not because we're, for, for Reform's sake, but because we see them as the consistent expression 
of what the scriptures teach. Everything we need for godliness, for life, and for our, our doctrine. So they want to go to some broadly evangelical community, megachurch, whatever the model might be. Uh, but perhaps we know some certain things about that church. Uh, it might be maybe a, a one of what we call the mainline or liberal denominations. We know some things about that church too. Um, my personal position on that, and I'm speaking privately here in public, uh, my personal position is that in consent with the elders, it might be it might behoove us on uh, several occasions. It, it, it's so quickly complicated and it's, and it's at times difficult to answer categorically because we really must treat this, deal with this and pray about this on a case-by-case basis. But I would perhaps be more inclined or more willing than some other pastors that I've talked to about this to write and to, to uh, give to the person who is a member of my church what we call a letter of standing for the receiving church when we're not convinced that he's going to a church which is, consistent, is as consistent in doctrine as it should be. And we're not comfortable with the choice that he's making. But he's pretty much, especially in the case of Larry, we've been talking about commitment here, when they've made up their minds and they're going, or so often, sadly, they've gone. They've gone. And um, what would we do then? Well, then my inclination would be we cannot uh, write a letter of transfer, transferring your membership from one church to this other church in good conscience. Uh, but what we can do is write a letter of standing. So we are giving a testimony to that receiving church where you've already decided in your heart to go that here, while, during that time you were with us, we saw that you, were, you had a love for the Lord Jesus Christ, you were involved in ministry, uh, you were at peace with the body of Christ, etc., etc. Okay. Any uh, pastors would you like to add to that? Mark? <laughs> Thank you, Mark. And, and, if, and Mark, and if you keep it up, <laughs> I was going to say he might be an example of such a transfer if he keeps that up. Now, and yes, I, I'm going to repeat for that for the tape. It, it's good, Mark. Uh, then I forgot the most obvious one that that um, glorious and automatic transfer of the, from the church militant to the church triumphant through death in in faith. The believers dying, the one who knows the reality of our only hope in life and in death is that we're not our own, but we belong body and soul to our Lord Jesus Christ who loved us. So there's a transfer triumphant in that case. And we all chuckled because uh, I neglected or I overlooked that for obvious reasons. Hold on there, Mark, if you would, because I, I think you might have more coming. Um, and I want to get this for the tape. I, what I should do is just pass you the microphone walk back there. But then I do feel a whole lot like Phil Donahue, so I'll stay away from that. Um, one, if there would be a tra- one legitimate reason in, in the question of criteria. Uh, one, another would be uh, a person asking for transfer for the purpose of ministry. Now, we have young men. We saw one yesterday who come before us. And we in the presbytery often see that they come under care of session. They come under the care of presbytery. And then the Lord calls them on 
uh, to serve the church in other areas. Uh, Harvest OPC has had uh, several candidates. Tipton is the last name? Yeah, for instance, right, Lane Tipton. And the Lord uses them uh, in the establishment of the church and the kingdom of, of, of the Lord in, in this wonderful way. So that would certainly be a legitimate reason. On to ministry in a different area of the country. Or the second one that he mentioned was returning to that area from which I come because my parents are elderly and infirm and they really need to have uh, their children look, looking uh, out for them and attending to them in uh, their last years. And that would be a very legitimate reason to send members of, of our family members of our churches off to minister to their, to their family. And another mark? Another a legitimate criterion would be one who has expressed that he would like to transfer his membership and that of his family because he would like to go to another Reformed church. Right, I kind of hopscotched that one and went to the one where we weren't comfortable with the doctrine of the receiving church and then we couldn't give a letter of, uh, um, of, a, a church me- of, of transfer. Uh, however, there might be these cases and it might be painful to us uh, where because of reasons of worship or ministry style, philosophy of ministry, they just feel more comfortable in another church. But the flip side of that, Mark, too, is that it might not be painful uh, for the other church because they're coming into our uh, ranks, as it were. They're coming to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church or our local church because they do like uh, our um, liturgy, our um, theology on the elements and style of worship, uh, our philosophy of ministry. And we had the testimony of one such just yesterday, did we not? Uh, so so it can, that... that there can be it, it, there are painful dimensions to it yes there are but that can be a dynamic which happens regularly uh, in our midst the reformed Presbyterian church in um, the United States is not one singular denomination it's more than one denomination Good. And then the, the next one that Pastor Schroeder mentioned about uh, the, the possibility where you are convinced that there is some uh, either uh, irremedial or unremedied situation in your particular church uh, where conscience does not permit you to continue in the fellowship of that local body. And you feel that having gone through the stages and steps of discipline and taking that appeal as far as it would go, you therefore are under uh, conscience that you must transfer your membership to uh, another denomination. Now, if we think back 70 years to the beginnings of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, we can see how that must have been the case, should have been the case, and was the case for many, many families where they could not in good conscience continue in what is now called the the PCUSA. And uh, a new denomination was born. Uh, this is good. Uh, I did have a lecture prepared for the second hour, <laughs> but this, this is good. Uh, first, Bill, and then Don. So, just a quick clarification: you said another denomination, but it's also another congregation with 
Yeah. Right. Good. It could be either another congregation within the same denomination for, for both of these last two points that Pastor Schroeder was making or another denomination of like faith. Pastor Don? Good. Wait a second. Let me get my pen. My wife has my pen. Yeah. Three general principles uh, underlying this whole question. One, Scripture says to keep your vows. The second one being set your standard high as the reason why you would leave the church. Set it very high. That it be apostasy or, or uh, if it's something other than apost- uh, apostasy then that's being an insufficient reason. And thirdly, in keeping with your vows, which you're to hold highly, get the counsel of your session before making these decisions. Uh, the great principles, uh, you know, at the same time, we, we've experienced, uh, or the, the, the direction of the question, from the questioner, we've experienced that, that it is hard to, we, well, we basically need to keep teaching our, our mem- the members of our church these principles day in and day out. Because what is happening all too often is that when push comes to shove, they abide by neither of the, of the principles, unfortunately, in today's day and age. Yes, Joe? Just a, a question, an observation. Thinking about going and you deal with the women who come to Christ really find themselves in conflict with the culture. I mean, their families, yes, but the Catholicism is the one part of the culture. Yes. Right. In, go ahead. Yes, exactly. Good point, Joe. Uh, and for the tape, where I'm ministering in Mexico, what we have, the context is a culture which is militantly, at times, opposed to the gospel. And there's, there's, a, there's, a, uh, there's an opposition to the gospel. Therefore, when people come to the gospel and coming to the church, it is a place of refuge. And, and the issues are more difficult on one side because there's, there's so much of the suffering that I made reference to in my first talk, but it's easier in another sense because it's so clear that, that, that this is where I'm welcomed and this is where I'm comforted. In the United States, it's not an opposition uh, to, to the, to the go- a militancy there, but uh, the United States being almost... Um, what were your words? There's a... Yeah, this this uh, right this commitment to individualism and in, and independence, and what uh, the fallout from that is that people don't have an idea of corporate commitment, corporate identity, and they're just kind of here and there. And what I want to do is going to what, what will determine what I will do tomorrow. And so much the you know the less for your counsel to me. Thank you very much. I'm on my way. So that we write letters, asking them to come and talk but they're never opened or they're returned to us on a you know, return to sender kind of thing and we never hear back. And it's, it's difficult. I understand that in the United States and I see it because some of these cases come to our presbytery and I see the tears of the men, the teaching elders and the ruling elders who have tried and who have gone the extra mile and have gone patiently and lovingly and with great conviction uh, to, to get the, the person to see that they need to be called back to these principles uh, because these principles are biblical principles and to reject them or to poo-poo them is to really mock the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, 
Larry, I hope that answers your question. Good. Uh, the, the third, uh, the second talk for this morning really is shorter, and I think I can uh, keep within the time constraints this morning and uh, briefly look at them. I can kind of run through this, although there's some important principles here as we look to the book of Mark. Let's finish up with, uh, with Matthew, uh, page 25 on your booklets, and, uh, and then I'll move quickly to Mark. Uh, the third part of the Great Commission as we find it in Matthew 28. The third part of the Great Commission is teaching them to observe, or in the NIV, I think, teaching them to obey uh, all that I have commanded you. So what is this then? Seeking to bring them into a right relationship to the Word of God. So the first part we had seeking to bring them into a right relationship with the Son of God, and then with the Church of God, and now with the Word of God. Teaching them, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. It is a lifelong ministry. So to come to Christ, to become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, to come to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ through baptism, profession of faith and baptism, we then enter that church wherein we are under the teaching ministry of the church. And that's one of the wonderful things that we can uh, sit under the faithful and perpetual teaching ministry. You know, on the other model, where it is that you know, we, we offer uh, salvation in Jesus Christ through door-to-door ministry and passing out of tracts and a presentation of, of, a, of a concise uh, um, uh, explanation of the gospel and someone becoming a Christian, supposedly in the comforts and confines of their living room, and never calling them at all or impressing upon them their new identity, which is to be expressed in the body of Christ, which is the local uh, congregation. On, on that construct, what often happens isn't this the case? Is that we, we then don't see any growth. There's no disciple, there's no progress. There's no growth in grace. Well, duh, you know, uh, how, why, why would we think there would be? And what happens? Typically we say, oh, well, it's our fault. There was something deficient in what we were doing. But what we think then is we need a follow-up program. So, I mean, in a sense, I want to be careful here because I really do think that we should go door-to-door and go in their homes and then we should go back and, and, and teach them even if they're homes, if that's where we're at at the moment. But in a sense, we shouldn't be begging people to do the very thing that coming to Christ means they want to do. They, they, they should want to come to Christ's church. They should want to come to the ministry of the word and teaching them to obey all things I've commanded you, which means they come running to, to that um, ministry of the word from the pulpits of our churches. It's not the church's duty to keep on going, finding them and hounding them. You know, this is the fifth out of six Sundays that you haven't come to church. But you made a decision to give your life to Jesus Christ in your living room that day. Uh, you know, it seems, uh, it seems that there's something out of order, uh, something askew here. Uh, teaching them is the lifelong ministry of the church under which the new believer in Jesus Christ comes joyfully and submissively. Jesus defines the disciple in, in these words. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Yes, that is one of the most often, in a sense, misquoted because it's half quoted verses in the United States of America. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Make sure that you are pointing out to the people who so in a cavalier way say that that they're quoting half the verse. It's an if-then clause. There's a conditional preface to that. If you hold to my teaching, then you are really my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There must be a continuing in the word and growing in grace. First Peter 
2 Peter, as it ends in the third chapter there, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Christians need to be under the sound preaching and teaching of the Word of God. This is the means to bring them into a right relationship to the Word of God and the God of the Word. To obey, I believe that's in your notes, uh, uh, the Greek, tereo, from teros, uh, means to watch or to guard. So therefore, I'm comfortable with either of the two uh, translations. Some say to observe, others say to obey. And I'm so confused now this morning, I don't remember which says which or which the NIV says. But, uh, but it's, they're, they're both proper translations for the term tereo. Uh, it can mean figuratively to fulfill a command. While literally it means to watch or to guard, therefore teaching them to observe, it can also mean to fulfill a command, therefore to obey. In conclusion, the goal of evangelism in Matthew 28 is very clear and we can summarize it from the passages uh, the, the passage that we've been considering. One, to make disciples, singing, seeking to bring them into a right relationship to the Son of God, baptize them, which is a church ordinance, uh, it is a sacrament, seeking to bring them into a right relationship to the church of God and teach them, seeking to bring them into, into a right relationship to the word of God. We must aim at nothing less than this threefold aim of the gospel as it is given to us in the Great Commission of Matthew 28. Now, Mark 16. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Mark 16. Verses 15 and 16. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. Jesus referred to here at the beginning of the 15th verse. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Uh, in Matthew, Jesus gave the goal of evangelism. In Mark, we have here recorded the scope or the, the, the breadth, the reach, the target of evangelism, if you will, as well as his results. Uh, now, firstly, and, and I'm going to point out, and there have been differences of position though, in the, Reformed his, the history of the Reformed churches. Um, I think we are in pretty clear agreement here uh, from I've known of the churches of Southern California. Perhaps some uh, would not exactly agree with my position, that which I'm expounding here. But I am convinced, and I have been sent by the church, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, to preach the gospel in Tijuana, and it is my position that the scope of our evangelism is very clear. We are to preach the gospel to all the world and to every creature. What John Murray refers to in one of his works, the free offer of the gospel, we have a section in our Trinity hymnal on that topic, the free offer of the gospel. I only know it's controversial in some circles of, of the Reformed faith because as I would drink coffee between classes back again in Philadelphia in seminary, uh, John Murray's work, the free offer of the gospel, was referred to by one friend and student as the worst thing he ever wrote. And he was just uh, bent on proving the case, his position otherwise, that, that it is not to be uh, freely and uh, fully and unfetteredly preached to all the world and every creature. Well, I'm convinced that the scripture teaches otherwise, and I believe you are too. The gospel is addressed to whosoever will. Uh, here, whosoever believes 
and is baptized will be saved, whoever, whosoever believes. The gospel is addressed to that whosoever will. We were talking last night after the uh, talk last night about Revelation, the third chapter, the 20th verse. And while we do well to point out that the whosoever of Revelation uh, 3.20 is sometimes misused and again perhaps taken from its context, you know the verse. Jesus says perhaps one of the most common verses in, in the evangelism uh, where it's recorded, here I am, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. Whosoever hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat or sup with him and him with me. And we were pointing out together that you really need to understand that verse and maybe that wouldn't be the first verse we would go to in our offer, the free offer of the gospel to all the world and to every creature because that really needs to be seen in its context and the context would be the last words of the Lord Jesus Christ to the last of the seven churches where he keeps on saying repeatedly, I'm coming. He's saying to the church, I come, I come, I come, therefore repent. Repent and strengthen the things that remain. Wake up, repent, and I'm coming for my church. And then he, at the last one, he says, I'm he has been, having said I'm coming, I'm here. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. So first and foremost, that verse of Revelation 3.20 is to be applied to the church. And we really see that specifically when we read the verse before it, Revelation 3.19, and we see that the Lord is talking about discipline of believers, the discipline of the church. And he reminds us, Hebrews the 12th chapter, that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. So that's the context. Yet at the same time, it was pointed out that there is a way, because there is still nevertheless a whosoever, that we can legitimately apply that call in our evangelism and to the unbelievers. But if you keep on going in the book of Revelation, there's another whosoever, which is even more clearly and easily applied. The 22nd chapter, the 17th verse, and you have it there in your booklets, which reads, The spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Hearkening back to the promise the free, full, and unfettered promise, the invitation, not ours, in our limited uh, ability, we don't have this, but it comes from the Lord himself. Isaiah, the 55th chapter, where um, people are called to come and drink of that water which alone satisfies and quenches our thirst. Of course, that water is the living water which Jesus Christ alone uh, can offer and can give. Uh, I have a quote here, and... uh, and again, it's from John Murray. I have, a, I have a quote in my notes from John Murray. Uh, if you would like this afterwards, I can go back and find it and, uh, and give, the, give that to you for the purpose of your notes. He writes, It must be said without reservation that there is no limitation or qualification to the offer of God's grace in the proclamation of the gospel. I'm going to read that again. It must be said without reservation that there is no limitation or qualification to the offer of God's grace in the proclamation of the gospel. The doctrines of God's sovereign election or the doctrine of limited atonement do not erect any fence around the offer in the gospel. Uh, and he points out uh, the uh, context of the well-known section and the invitation of Christ himself as it is recorded in Matthew, the 11th chapter. Why don't you just open to that section in your Bibles, Matthew 11. Verses 25 to 30. 
which is to say 25 to the end of the chapter. Matthew 11:25 to the end of the chapter. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then the next verse, Christ's open invitation. The scripture records your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Murray writes this and it's worth getting your pens out to, uh, to write it down. He says it so well. Quote, It is on the crest of the wave of divine sovereignty that the unrestricted invitation comes to the laboring and the heavy laden. When we read that entire section verses 25 to 30. It is on the crest of the wave of divine sovereignty that the unrestricted invitation comes to the laboring and the heavy laden, unquote. This is Jesus' own witness and it provides the direction in which our thinking on the question must proceed. Any inhibition or reservation should no more characterize our witness than it did the Lord's himself. The scope uh, is very clear. Matthew 17, is that in your booklets? Um, uh, Matthew, uh, Paul before the Areopagus? Yes, I'd be glad to. Having read the context, Matthew 11:25 to 30, then John Murray's quote, it is on the crest of the wave of divine sovereignty that the unrestricted invitation comes to the laboring and the heavy laden. Therefore, Jesus' own witness on that question. God's sovereign choice and nevertheless the Son's uh, free offer of the gospel, free, full, and unfettered. That, uh, that, that must, his teaching there in Matthew 11 must provide the direction for our own thinking and on which we would proceed. Uh, what I was going to refer to, and I, again, help me, is it in your books, Acts chapter 17, Paul before the Areopagus? Is that reference in there? Well, if not, it, it should be. And, uh, and I might even have to have you find me. I'm sorry that I'm, I'm messing with my notes here. I believe it's uh, Acts chapter 17 where Paul says, therefore God, well, we know it by heart, therefore God commands all men everywhere to repent. If someone can find that for me, and we'll just get it in there for, in your notes. Uh, yeah, these, these correct. These are all under point A in your in your outlines. Thank you. It's towards the end of his sermon, and it's verse thirty. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. There's another example, a biblical proof text, if you will, for the um, free offer of the gospel, which is given to us in our chapter this morning uh, from Mark 16. The scope of our evangelistic efforts is to be addressed. We are to go indiscriminately, as it were. We are to go to people of all tongues, people of all nations, people of all social class, people of all language, people of all color of skin, people of all background of education or vocation uh, in their callings, in the jobs that they, that they uh, work. And we are to 
preach the gospel and off make this free offer in the Lord Jesus Christ to all indiscriminately. Uh, but now, the results. What are the results? Verse 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And I kind of just want to quickly, because we've uh, run out of time, there are a lot of implications from this, and, so, and some of them might come up in the questioning. But all I want to direct our attention to for the purpose of encouraging you in your personal evangelism and the many uh, flavors or type that evangelism might take. Bear in mind, we've often talked about the uh, ministry of the gospel both in word or in deed. So let's say your strength is diaconal deed-type ministries. While we don't want to shirk our responsibility to say what we can when we can so that we are diaconally offering the cup of cold water in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to make sure that people glorify our Father in heaven and not what we're doing, whether we're pouring a slab uh, for a house or erecting walls of a house helping people who are homeless in Tijuana or helping the homeless uh, in Los Angeles. While we want to make sure that we are doing it clearly in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, what I want to point out is that the very doing of it is an aspect of evangelistic ministry. And, and we need to be encouraged along those lines. Um, um, and whenever and wherever the gospel is faithfully preached, there will be results which honor and glorify God. So we don't need to think uh, that there is only success and God is only honored when the people we're sharing our faith with come to know Jesus Christ. And we're a failure and we certainly shouldn't think that the gospel is a failure when there's any reaction short of that. No. When the Bible is shared and taught, when the biblical gospel is preached, there will be results and God will be glorified. His saving love and mercy will be glorified in the salvation of some. And his justice and his holiness and his righteousness will be glorified in the damnation of others, those who do not believe. There are many who uh, don't like to mention this today, this aspect of the results of evangelism. But in the Bible it's clear. When God reveals his mercy, he also reveals his judgment. And the Bible makes this also clear. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. Now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ and to make manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death and to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things, Paul asks. We have many examples of this twofold result whereby God is glorified in either throughout the scripture and the history of God's saving acts for his people. We have it at the Red Sea. God's mercy was manifest in the salvation of his covenant people by rescuing them and by bringing them out of the land of, of uh, servidumbre, of bondage, thanks, and uh, bringing them in into uh, uh, salvation. And uh, also in his justice, which was manifest in the destruction of the horse and the rider. We have it displayed at the time of the flood. His mercy was manifest in the salvation of Noah and his family. His justice was manifest in the destruction of those whose wickedness was great and whose every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. We have the twofold manifestation of God's mercy and God's justice at Sodom. When in justice he rained fire and brimstone on those who were heart of heart and he also manifests his uh, saving mercy 
to Lot. Uh, of course, we have the supreme example, do we not? Is the cross of Calvary. The greatest example is Calvary's cross, where God's justice was shown, was displayed in his hatred for sin. The very nature of the cross is God's eternal justice, which was poured out, his wrath against sin, which was poured out at the cross. And yet at the same time, at that same place, his saving love and mercy to poor sinners such as you and me uh, was made very wonderfully manifest. The spirit of the cross speaks God's eternal love. Both eternal love and justice flow for the same cross. The God who is rich in mercy, he revealed himself to Moses when Moses asked to see a glimpse of his glory. The Lord, the Lord, patient, long-suffering, merciful, and yet at the same time, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Mark gives us the results of of the heavenly mandate, salvation or damnation. And may God help us be faithful to the command of Christ to take the message to the world and take consolation the fact that God will be glorified regardless of the results. Yes, to the sum, the gospel will be a savor unto life, salvation, which is salvation to others. We and our message will be a savor of death unto death, which is damnation. But most certainly, if we obey this heavenly mandate, God will be glorified. So in Mark 16, the Great Commission gives us both the scope to whom should we preach the gospel and the results of that gospel proclamation. There is some time for questions. <laughs> Got In that case, hold your questions and we can uh, ask the questions tomorrow in tomorrow's session. We are dismissed. God bless you as you go.